few weeks ago, I challenged our church family to dig deep, that uh, we had about a $625,000 gap we needed to close as we finished up our new Apex facility. And across all of our campuses, I said, let's sacrifice, let's see what we can do in a month. Could we wipe out this $625,000 above our regular giving, which is significant. And I'm excited to announce that not only did we raise $625,000, we raised an extra $51,000. So we ended up with $676,000, which has truly positioned us to move forward to do the things that I know that God is calling us to do in our community and throughout the world over the next few months. So I want to thank you for your generosity. But probably what was more uh, encouraging to me was I found out that during that uh, four-week period of time, we had 236 families at Hope Community Church, part of our church family, who gave for the very first time. And that's exciting to me because that tells me that you buy into what God is doing here at Hope Community Church. And if we can just keep it up, uh, we're going to have a phenomenal year as we have the opportunity to be used by God to expand his kingdom. Now, we're in the third week of our series that we're basing on the Gospel of John. And in this series... We're looking into the last few hours of the life of Jesus. If you've read the Gospel of John, and you probably had, it's the most read book in the Bible, the Gospel of John. There are 21 chapters in the Gospel of John, but what's interesting is the first 12 chapters in the Gospel of John take place over a span of about three and a half years. But when you get to John chapter 13, the next seven chapters literally take place over the span of just a few hours. And it is a very, very intense time because Jesus realizes that death is imminent, the clock is ticking, but yet he still has some truths and principles to impart to his disciples so that they will be positioned to carry on and continue to spread the gospel after he leaves this earth. It kind of reminds me of a situation I found myself in <clears throat> a few years ago. Uh, this was back in the early days. Our church was maybe a couple of hundred people. We were meeting in the fire trap over on Chapel Hill Road. And I had a friend there. His name was Marty. And uh, one Sunday after church, I knew he was a distance runner. He came up, he gave me a hug. He said, listen, I won't be here next week, which was very unusual. He was one of those guys that never missed. But he said, I'm going to be running in the New York City Marathon. And I said, that's awesome, man. I hope you have a great run. I'll see you the week after next. And sure enough, two weeks later, he walked in. I said, how did it go? And he said, it's kind of weird. He said, I got about a third of the way into the marathon, and I had this incredible stomach pain. And I didn't know what was going on, but I wasn't even able to finish the race. And I said, well, are you okay? And he says, yeah, I'm sure I'm okay. I have a doctor's appointment this week. But what we learned later that week, that he had stage four pancreatic cancer. He had no idea. And when literally within a few weeks, uh, he had been sent home from the hospital. They put a hospital bed in his master bedroom, and they left him there till he passed away. And I was there spending a day with him that I was pretty sure was probably going to be his last day. He had five children that aged from middle school up through college. And later on in the afternoon, probably around 5 or 6 o'clock, he called them all, and they stood around the end of his bed. And at that point, he was so weak, he could barely even communicate. But he started with the youngest, and he went through each child, and he talked to them. And he said, these are your strengths. These are your weaknesses. This is what I've noticed about your personality. These are the kind of individuals that you need to surround yourself. These are the things that you can be encouraged about. These are the things that you're going to need to watch out in your life. And I got to tell you, one of the most painful things I've ever experienced in my life was sitting there beside him as he imparted some last-minute truths and principles in each one of these kids' lives. And then about 2 in the morning, a few hours later, he slipped into eternity. Understand, that's kind of what's going on here. Jesus knows the clock is ticking. He's still got some stuff. There's not a lot of time left. So this weekend, listen, I need the attention of every student, business person, homemaker, teacher, Firemen, policemen, 
doctor, attorney, especially the attorneys, but everybody here, right? Because every one of us, we need to hear what Jesus had to say in the latter part of John chapter 15. And to be honest, it's going to scare the, uh, uh, the bejeebies out of some of you if you've never really heard this before, if you're hearing it for the first time. And that's okay, because I don't believe that Jesus said what he said in the latter part of John chapter 15 to make us feel good. I don't think he said it to make us happy, to give us the warm fuzzies. Jesus simply said this to prepare us for a future that could happen in my generation. If not in my generation, it could certainly happen in the next generation. So understand, my goal this weekend is simply to be accurate. It's not to make you feel happy. It's not to make you feel warm and fuzzy. It's not to make you feel good about yourself. It's simply to be accurate. But before we look at what Jesus said in John chapter 15, I want to show you something that Paul wrote to a young man named Timothy in a letter that eventually found its way into our Bible. It's the book of 2 Timothy. And he writes in this letter, and it seems to be a prophecy that is unfolding right before our very eyes. It's as if we have a front row seat. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Now understand that when Paul wrote this, he wasn't describing the culture, the world that we live in. He was describing what it would be like among the body of Christ, Christians, in the last days. He says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People, and he's talking about us, he's talking about Christians, will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, sound familiar yet? <laughs> Disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited. Now notice this phrase, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. Is that true in the body of Christ today? Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God? Did you know that less than 18% of people who identify them as committed Christians, committed followers of Jesus Christ, even attend church twice a month? Less than 18%. Do you know why? It's because we live in a generation of Christians where we have become lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. But notice that phrase in verse 1, there will be terrible times in the last day. This Greek word that's translated terrible times means savage. It means exceedingly violent. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Mike, why do we care about savage times? I mean, this is America. Life is good. Haven't you checked out the stock market lately? Things are going really, really well. But I think what Paul is saying here, listen, you'd better care. You'd better care about these things. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 10, you, again, Timothy, however, he's talking about how the world's going to be falling away from following Christ. But he says, you, however, know about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance. But notice the next two words, my persecutions, my sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, the persecutions, I endured. And you hear that and you think, yeah, Mike, but that was, that was the first century. Things were squirrely in the first century. And this was the Apostle Paul. I mean, let's face it. He was saying, he was blunt. He was always getting himself in trouble. But notice what it says in verse 12. In fact, everyone. See that word everyone? In the Greek, that word is everyone, okay? Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, if you don't want to live a godly life, in Christ Jesus, you're off the hook, okay? But Paul says this, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And that's a little hard for us to believe, unless you're a college student on a college campus that's bold enough to ask the wrong question in the wrong professor's class. Or in case, unless you're in the marketplace and you're really trying to live a life of integrity, but you're surrounded by a bunch of people who aren't interested in living a life of integrity. 
Or, and I hear this story from time to time, unless your spouse walked out on you because of your commitment to follow Jesus. But as you're going to see this weekend, we shouldn't be shocked that people are going to hate us, even persecute us for following Jesus. Jesus predicted it was going to happen. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when is it going to happen. So if you have your Bible this week, this would be a great week to have your Bible. Turn over with me to John chapter 15. On your way to John chapter 15, I'm going to stop off in John chapter 16. I want to show you something that Jesus said in verse 33. He said this, I have told you these things. So at the end of John 16, Jesus is referring back to what we're getting ready to look at. And he says, I have told you these things so that I may scare you to death. No, that's not what he said. I have told you these things so that in me you may have, what's the word? Peace. I have told you these things so that you may have peace peace. In this world, you will have trouble. Donnie talked about that last week. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. We saw that last week. We are going to have troubles in life. As we said, we're either going into a storm, we are in a storm, or we're coming out of a storm. But it's all about trouble. It's all about storms. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. <clears throat> but take heart. I have overcome the world. So this isn't to scare us. Is to bring us peace. And if you're a little scared, just go to the end of the Bible, read the last few pages. We win. We win. So it's all going to work out okay. Now, John chapter 15, Jesus gives us some very specific information in regards to Christians and persecution. So I'm just going to this weekend, I'm just going to answer four questions. Here's the first question. Who in the world would want to persecute Christians? Who would want to persecute us? After all, we're so cute and cuddly and nice and lovable and joyful and kind and we're so, we're so patient and peaceful. But this is what you need to understand. I'll go ahead and tell you in case you have to leave early. This is what Jesus wants to get across in John chapter 15. This is what you need to know. As Christians, the world does not love us. We are a pain in the world's butt. And if that pain becomes big enough, it will move into the realm of persecution. This is what Jesus is warning us. And in 18 and 19, verses 18 and 19, he identifies our persecutors. If the world hates you, Keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Now understand, when Jesus talks about the world, he's not referring to planet Earth. He's talking about the world system that we live in. He's talking about all the things that go into the world's self-improvement program. Things like education, things like philosophy, things like politics, things like self-enlightenment. It would certainly include the arts. It's all the things that we're interested in in this life, in this world, in this society, in this culture that convinces us that we're getting better, we're getting wiser, we're getting more enlightened. In fact, if you ask the average person in the world, we believe that mankind is making progress, that we're getting better and better and better and better and better. But it's interesting, if you read the scriptures, especially if you read Romans chapter 1, where Paul writes the church to Rome, he talks about the downward vortex of sin that's been taking place since the fall. And he wants us to understand the world is not getting better and better and better. The world is getting worse and worse and worse. But the world likes to think it's getting better and better and better. So Paul sums it up in chapter 1 of Romans, verse 22. He talks about the day, although they claim to be wise. See, that's what the world thinks now. Although they claim to be wise... They became fools. 
In other words, Paul predicts there will be a time when society gets to the place where they think, we do not need God. We don't need his principles. We don't need his precepts. We don't need his truths. We don't need his absolutes. We certainly do not need his rules. We are as smart as God. We've got life figured out. And Paul says that when the world culture, the world system gets to that place, God looks at that and thinks, fools, idiots, dingbats. But that's the world system. And if you still don't know what I'm talking about when I describe the world system, do this. Next time there is a Hollywood award show on TV, the Golden Globes, the People's Choice, the Oscars, Tune in, and you will see exactly what I'm looking, what I'm talking about. It is, it is all of that. You know, you got some people who took a couple of acting classes, got discovered in Starbucks, and now make $20, 25000000 million to make a movie, and now they are experts on the world and life and how to fix it all. I just read this week there's an actor who has committed the rest of his life to making sure that drinking straws are made illegal in his lifetime. How noble a cause is that, right? But if, if you listen as they receive these awards, I mean, they're going to save the elephants. They're going to save the tigers. They're going to save the meerkats, the kitty cats, the puppy dogs. I mean, it's all about protecting and defending the defenseless. And from their perspective, they are so impressed with themselves and they are so wise. But let me tell you something. If an actor won an award... And he says, I'm concerned, and this is what I'm committing my life to. Since 1971, when abortion was made legal, there have been 58 million babies created in the image of God. According to Psalm 119, woven together in their mother's womb, fearfully and wonderfully made, that have been legally aborted. Defenseless. They need protection. That's my cause. I'm telling you, he would never work in Hollywood again. See, it's all about acceptance in the world system. It's all about tolerance in the world system. It's all about inclusion in the world system, unless you disagree. And then the claws come out. My point is this. If you decide to take a stand on biblical principles, not your idea, biblical principles in today's culture, you had better be prepared because, as Jesus said here, the world system at its core is anti-God. The world system at its core hates God. Now, that leads us to the second question. What can we expect from the world system? Two things. Verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. So the very first thing we can expect from the world is that the world is going to hate us. Now, that hate can come in many forms. It could be as subtle as avoidance. The world may just disregard our thoughts, our opinion, how we feel. Maybe you won't be invited, you know, to the neighborhood parties. I get that. I'm a, man, I'm a pastor. The last person you want at your party is a pastor. So I'm used to, plus I don't have a golf cart in my community, so I don't fit in, right? So, so I'm used to not being invited, but I feel bad for Laura because she actually likes people. She would like to go to those parties, right? Maybe you won't be invited to the neighbor's parties. Maybe you won't be on the in crowd on the college campus. Or maybe, 
maybe society will just try to make us look like, well, if you're a Christian, but then you're just an idiot. You know, you, you sit in the sitcoms, you sit in shows like Saturday Night Live, or maybe we'll be bullied, we'll be called bigots, something that ends in a phobe, something right narrow. But I'm telling you, the world is going to hate us. Jesus says, hey, haters are going to hate. That's what he's saying right there. And then the second thing we can expect from the world is we will be persecuted. If you try to live a Christ-centered life, I'm telling you, you are going to face persecution. Verse 20, remember what I told you, and he refers back to something he said just a few chapters early, John chapter 13, verse 16, part of the upper room discourse. He said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. This Greek word for persecute means to put to flight. Uh, to pursue. A.T. Robinson wrote in one of his books, talking about word pictures in the New Testament, it, it means to chase like a wild beast. And if you're not sure that there's persecution going on against Christians, let me enlighten you a little bit. <clears throat> According to the United States Department of State, Christians in more than 60 countries face persecution from their government or surrounding neighbors simply because of their beliefs in Jesus Christ. I found another article, Open Doors USA. It has identified 2016 as the, quote, worst year yet for Christian persecution ever since the organization began monitoring persecution 25 years ago. The report found that persecution of Christians rose globally for the third year in a row, reaching, quote, unprecedented levels in countries located in South and Southeast Asia, among other locations. According to CNN, last year was the most violent for Christians in modern history, rising to, I quote, a level akin to ethnic cleansing, unquote, according to the report. You say, well, Mike, wait a minute, that, that's, that's, that's Asia, and that's, that's the Middle East. Well, the Washington Times, Tuesday, April 5th, uh, 2016, so we're not even a year ago, Quote, a poll finds that in just two years, the number of Americans who think Christians are facing growing intolerance in the United States has drastically increased. 63% of respondents in a survey said they agree or strongly agree that Christians are facing growing levels of persecution. A similar number, 60%, said that religious liberty is on the decline in America, and that is up from 54% in just 2013. There's an article in Christianity Today entitled, Are American Christians Really Persecuted? August 22nd, 2016. The writer writes this, Anti-Christian hostility is on the minds of many American Christians these days. Each new legal challenge to religious liberty at the state and federal level raises the issue afresh. It seems that today, Christians must think through, listen to this, Christians must think through their cultural position more carefully than at any other point in U.S. history. Still, given the terrible persecution of Christians overseas, the writer says, I wonder whether it's accurate to say that American Christians are, quote, under persecution. He writes, when I discuss the rise in anti-Christian hostility in the United States, I avoid using the persecution word, and I don't make comparisons to other parts of the world. But listen to a Middle Eastern underground house church leader. Put this quote up. This is the underground church leader. He said, persecution is easier to understand when it's physical. Torture, death, imprisonment. American persecution is like an advanced stage of cancer. It eats away at you. 
You cannot fill it. This is the worst kind of persecution. There will be persecution. Jesus, Jesus predicted it. Now here's the third question I want to answer. Why will this occur? Well, understand, first of all, as Christians, we have been called to live in this world by a different standard. Go back to verse 19. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Now, this is what Jesus was getting at. Jesus was saying this. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have been called to live to a different standard than the society in which we live in. And he's saying if you make that choice that you're going to live that way, and if you choose to put God's standard above culture standard, if you choose to put God's standard above society standards, if you choose to put God's standard above what society considers to be politically correct, you are going to get grief. You see it all through the Bible. The classic case is Daniel when he was told that he couldn't pray to his God, and he prayed, and what did he do? He found up himself in the lion's den. I look out and I see Shannon. Shannon. Shannon was the model. You saw her story earlier this year with her husband, Matt. They were models, and she was on America's Next Top Model. And Laura and I were traveling one time, and we, we'd gotten into our hotel, and we kind of plopped down the bed, and we flipped on the TV, and, and Laura's kind of channel surfing. And we go by something, and I was like, whoa, 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 back up. And it, it was an episode of America's Next Top Model, not something that I typically watch. But as we were going by, I saw Shannon on the episode. It was one that included her. So, I go, so, so anyway, I, I emailed us. I we are watching this right now. They were in Greece, and they had to do a very, very risque lingerie shoot. And Shannon said, my commitment to God and my biblical principles will not allow me to do this shoot. Amen. And you know what they did? They voted her off the island, right? They kicked her off the show. Well, I saw her a couple of weeks later in the atrium. And I said, well, the nice thing was, is even when you made your stand, they were nice to you. She said, yep, until they turned off the cameras. And the claws came out. That's what I'm talking about. Why? Because, well, according to Jesus, she's not of this world. She holds to a higher standard. That's why she was persecuted. That's what I'm talking about. And then Jesus goes on to say in verse 21, they will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Jesus says, don't take it personally. It's me. It's not you. They're going to treat you this way because of me. But the reality is this. There is a built-in guilt that people feel in our culture. When you try to live a God-centered, Christ-centered life, and you're surrounded by people who aren't trying to live the same and I'm not talking about being a Bible thumper. I'm not going around, you know, hitting everybody with your Bible and carrying a sign saying the end is near and telling everybody they're going to go to hell. I'm not talking about being obnoxious just for the sake of being obnoxious. I'm talking about simply trying to live a life of obedience to God. In fact, trust me, next time a conversation comes up at work or maybe on your school campus or maybe at the gym where you work out or maybe in your neighborhood about a controversial topic that's unfolding in our culture today, I dare you, I dare you to try to take a biblical stand. You will see a side of people you didn't think existed. Every once in a while, I'll get drawn into one of these things, not really drawn in, sometimes walk into them without going, realizing what's going on. And when I realize what's going on, this is using my prayer, don't ask me anything, don't ask me anything, don't ask me anything, don't ask me anything, right? 
But inevitably, hey, Mike, what's your church's position on this? And I said, well, we don't really have church positions. We have, we have biblical positions. We, we try to see what God says and, and live accordingly. And they'll say, so what does the Bible say about this? I'll say, well, if, if you want to know, the Bible says this. You're saying it's wrong? I'm saying the Bible say, says it's wrong. And I don't know how, but every unbeliever in the world knows this verse. Judge not lest you be judged. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm not really judging. I mean, you, you ask me what the Bible said, and I'm just telling you what the Bible, I didn't write it. I would write a whole different book if it was up to me, right? But you ask me, well, who died and made you God? Well, nobody actually. I'm, I wouldn't be a very good God. I, no one's died, you know. But my point is, if you try to bring light in the darkness, I'm telling you, the very existence of a Christian among our society is a guilt-producing existence. See, it's one thing to live in darkness and not realize that you're living in darkness. It's one thing to live a life disobedient to God's Word, but you don't realize you're living a life disobedient to God's Word. And listen, let's say it. The world revolves around our media. And what our media tells our people, our world, who aren't moored to this book of absolutes, they're going to believe. They're going to buy into. 90% of college students are perfectly fine with same-sex marriage. It doesn't matter whether they're Christians or Where are they getting their information? Not from this book. They're getting it from the media. And so don't be surprised that people believe that everything's okay, that there aren't any absolutes, unless you come along and say, well, not necessarily everything is okay. And there are some absolutes. I'm telling you, it creates problems. In fact, look what Jesus said in verse 22. He said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. So Jesus, if, if I haven't shown up and told them that what they were actually doing was sin, they wouldn't know. But now they know. And when people know, but they don't like what they hear, Now, what do we do with this? I mean, good gracious, we're just trying to be light, right? How do we respond to something like this? Let me give you a couple of negative things not to do, a couple of positive things to do. Let's start with the positive. And we'll talk more about this next week. Do rely on the Holy Spirit. Do rely on the Holy Spirit. Look what it says in verse 26. Jesus says, when the advocate, and that's a reference to the Holy Spirit, when the advocate comes whom I will send to you from the Father, and we know that's going to happen in just a few chapters in Acts chapter 2, he will testify about me. So Jesus says, just so you understand, I, understand Jesus had to go back to heaven. Jesus wasn't omnipresent. Jesus was attached to a body. He had to go back to heaven so he could send the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. When I send him, let him do his job. Don't try and fight these battles in your own power, your own wisdom, your own strength, your own knowledge. If you do, I'm tell you what will happen. You will become paranoid. You will become defensive. You will become that ugly, fanatical Christian that everyone can't stand. Instead, Jesus says, rely on the Holy Spirit. He'll be your comforter. He'll be your helper. He will be your advocate. He will fight the battles for you. He will either take care of the people who hate you, or he's going to give you the courage and the strength to roll right through them. 
But do rely on the Holy Spirit. Second, do share the story of how Jesus has changed your life. One of our five goals here for a Christian who is growing, a disciple, is that you willing you share the story of how the gospel, what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross and his resurrection, how it has changed your life. Look what Jesus said in verse 27. And you also must testify. That's a good old word, testify. For you have been with me from the beginning. Let me tell you something. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, do not sell yourself short. You are a living witness of who Jesus Christ is and why he came and how he can transform a life. Don't back off. Don't nullify your witness. Don't change your stand. You refuse to compromise. Share the story of how Jesus has shared your life. Now, those are the positives. Let me give you the negatives. The first one is in John 16, verse 1. Jesus says, all this I have told you so that you will not fall away. The New American Standard is so much better. Sometimes the NIV, I don't know why they change words. But the New American Standard, this verse says, these things I have spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. The word is stumbling. Our English word stumbling comes from the Greek word scandal. So Jesus says, don't be scandalized. Don't let them make you stumble. Don't be tripped up. By the way, what is stumbling? It's an interruption in your walk. I mean, you're walking. When you stumble, it's an interruption. When we first moved here, we lived in our little 900-square-foot, two-bedroom apartment, Brampton-Moore Apartments up on Chatham. And uh, they had this little gym in, in, the, in, the, in, in the clubhouse. And one morning, I, I went and worked out, and I think it was spring, and there's a little pond there, and I'm kind of looking at the pond, and the birds flying, and I didn't realize there was a step down in the sidewalk, and the next thing I knew, I was rolling through the grass. And you ever do that? And you jump up, hope nobody's looking. Laura's always looking. From a mile away, Laura can spot those things, right? That's an interruption in your walk. So Jesus says, don't stumble. Don't allow hatred and persecution to get you out of step with what I have called you to do and what I have called you to be. Don't let it interfere with your walk. And then second... Don't forget. John 16, verse 4, Jesus said, I have told you this so that when their time comes, when these things happen, you will remember that I warned you about them. Jesus says, don't forget. I told you this was going to happen. So when it happens, don't be shocked. When it happens, don't be blown away. When it happens, don't be discouraged. I've always said that Christians are notorious for remembering what we should forget and forgetting what we should remember. I mean, we can remember every sin we've ever committed, even though God's forgiven us of those sins. But I'm telling you what, we can't remember the simple promises that will give us the strength and the ability to get through the tough times without stumbling. I have told you this, verse 4, so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I love that song we sang this weekend. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Just look full in his glorious, wonderful face. Everything else will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Just, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta remember what Jesus has told us. I wanna give you a couple of statements to wrap all of this up. Here's the first one. There's a big difference between being a jerk and enduring persecution, right? I mean, let's be honest. As Christians, we can be obnoxious. We can come across like we're know-it-alls. We can be judgmental. We can be arrogant. We can feel like, hey, I'm right, you're wrong. We can come across, you know what, I'm a Christian. I'm better than you, right? 
And then we wonder why people respond negatively to us, and they think we're obnoxious. My God, I'm so persecuted. Well, you may be persecuted, but you're not being persecuted because you're trying to live a Christ-centered life. You're being persecuted because you're a jerk. You're being persecuted because you're obnoxious. Now, let me just say this. There are times when we have to take a biblical stand on a principle that God has given us. That's biblical. But let's make sure that we avoid being petty. You know what I've learned as I've gotten older? There are a lot less black and whites than there were when I was younger. I'll give you a great example. A couple of years ago, I was asked to be a part of a marketplace conference at a church here in town. And I was part of a panel where you could ask questions. And I was on the panel with the president of a seminary and me, PE major. It's like putting whipped cream on an onion, just putting me on the, <laughs> on the same couch with this guy, right? And immediately the question came up, if we have a coworker who is getting married in a same-sex marriage, should we boycott and not go to the wedding? And the president of the seminary went on for about 15 minutes telling why we shouldn't do that. We don't want to go. We don't want to endorse it. We don't want to put our stamp of approval on it. Don't go. You got you to take a stand, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Very good job. And I, he's certainly entitled to, to have that opinion. And then the, the, the MC asked me, he said, the moderator, Mike, do you have anything to add? And I'm like, I said, I, respectfully, I, I would just add one little thing. I would never do a same-sex marriage because it's not biblical. It's not what God created marriage to be. And we'll talk about this in our family series after Easter, but God created marriage between, between a man and a woman. He created husband and wife to procreate, to multiply. But there's a lot of Hebrew nuances there that we'll talk about, but you can have a contract, you can have whatever you want, but from a biblical perspective, two people of the same sex cannot be married, not from God's perspective. So to me, that's pretty black and white. So I would never perform a same-sex wedding. But I would tell you something. I have a lot of friends who have gay children. And if they were getting married and they invited me to their wedding, I would go. You say, Mike, would you go? why would you go? Because I live by this principle. You can never influence anyone who doesn't feel accepted by you. Now, it doesn't mean I approve. Approval doesn't mean acceptance. Acceptance doesn't mean approval. Anybody who would invite me to their same-sex wedding would know me enough to know biblically where I stand on that issue. But I have no chance to minister in their life if they feel I have no room in my life for them. Listen, <laughs> if I didn't have anybody in my life, if they sinned, And neither would you. Say, I go to some of your kids' weddings and you don't tithe. <laughs> oh, that's different. You don't serve. Right? Here's my point, though. If you pull all the light out of darkness, where's the light? Which leads me to the second principle. There's a big difference between loving the world and living in the world. Understand it was never God's plan to take us out of the world. Wouldn't that have been great, by the way? The minute we accept Jesus, boom, transported right to heaven. People would be lined up. I'm next, right? Right? 
But if that were the case, there'd be no light. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, beginning of verse 14. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they, they put it on a stand and it gives light. It gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and not glorify you, but give glory to your Father in heaven. See, God's plan was never to take us out of this world. It was, never, it was never for us to avoid the world, to go live in a cave and, and eat bird seed. That was never his plan. His plan was to make sure we were protected while we were in the world. God's plan was never for us to be isolated from the world. His plan was that we would be insulated from the world. Now, why is this so important? Well, let me tell you this. We are living at a time in history when things are becoming a little clearer in our society. Let's be honest, the American dream isn't working as well as it used to. Painkillers aren't killing enough pain. Relationships are confusing. They're not ver working very well. They're creating all kinds of chaos and alternative to Christianity. They're failing left and right. Lostness in our culture in America, people without Christ, is at an all-time high. Did you know 80% of the churches in America have plateaued or they are in decline? Did you know 4,000 churches in America go out of business every year? Wow. And because of that, I'm telling you, the world is full of people who are ripe and ready to hear that God is still in the come to me business. And what a great opportunity for us to share the good news, the gospel, that Jesus Christ still changes lives. That's, our, that's what we're supposed to be doing. That's why he left us here. It's to get the message out. It's to spread the good news. But here's a heartbreaking statistic. 70% of us have not shared our faith, our story with anyone in at least a year. And we wonder why society's in the mess that it's in. I'm telling you, you can live in this world without loving this world and you can make an impact. I'm telling you, I think this is the most exciting era in which to live. Jesus could come any day. And when, when he says, that's it, that's it. And somebody's got to be here. When it all starts to unravel, I think that's an honor. I mean, we get like a front row seat, right? My point is this, don't worry about persecution. Don't be afraid of what you hear and what you read. It may all be true, but understand, God is calling the shots. Listen be aware of what is going on and respond as you should. And as you should respond to this, be alert, be ready, and be actively sharing the story of how Jesus Christ has changed your life. This is what A.W. Tozer said. Unfortunately, Christians think of the world not as a battleground, but as a playground. That's what Paul was saying in 2 Timothy 3. We're not here to fight, they say. We're here to frolic. We're not in a foreign land. We're at home. Those are the words of a carnal Christian. And I love this phrase. The longer you live here, the more homesick you should be. He says, the longer we live here as Christians and realize the world is not our friend, the more we ought to be like John. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. How cool would it be if he came back today? Unless you're not ready. Let's pray. And let me just say, for those of you who have never accepted God's free gift of salvation, Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin, rose three days later from the dead to verify that he was the one who could take away the sins of the world. 
so that you could be restored back into a relationship with the Father, so that you could be reconciled, so that your sins could be forgiven, so that you would have the purpose and the power to live the life that he's called you to right now, and then when you die, you get to spend all eternity with him in a place he created just for you called heaven. There is no better offer, but you have to accept it. And if you're here at any of our campuses this weekend and you've never accepted that gift, I'd encourage you after the service is over, go to our next steps counter and just say, I'd like to talk to somebody. And we have people who would love to share with you how you can know before your head hits the pillow tonight that you've been reconciled back into that relationship with God, that your past is forgiven, your present is forgiven, your future is forgiven, and your eternity is secure. Father, thank you. Thank you for one reality. Some of us get the idea that once we become Christians, life's just gonna be perfect and it's gonna get better and better and better and better and everybody's gonna love us. Yet you're like, no, that's not the way it works. We can live in the world without loving the world and we need to learn how to do that because you've called us to be light. But Father, help us to understand this world's gonna be full of problems tribulations, but we can, we can take heed because your son has overcome the world. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that empowers us to be the people that you've created us, called us to be. And next week as we look at what that looks like in our community and the world, may we be alert, maybe we be ready, may we be listening. In your name we pray, amen.